everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up in at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com, or hey, like, subscribe, follow wherever you're listening. You'll keep up with us that way. You can rate, review, whatever you want to do. We really appreciate it. Now, uh, today's episode is going to be fun. Um, it is a day late. We've had, as I said, a friend of ours staying with us, um, and our guest room is technically where all of my recording software is, so it's been a little tricky, you know, finding time, because I usually work late at night, but then now my buddy's asleep, so I have to find time uh, to kind of work through that. Plus, we have a family coming to visit us. There's just been a lot going on, guys, so thank you for being patient, and I hope it's worth it, because today I am going to be talking about a movie that was my most anticipated film of the year when Joe and I did our list, and that is Phil Tippett's Mad God. Um, I'm excited to talk about that. I'll just give a few thoughts on that. I literally just watched it, so this is going to be an absolute fresh take on the movie. Um, but you can watch that on Shutter, And then after that, Joe is going to be here, and we're going to talk about uh, two films that are celebrating a 35th anniversary this year, 2022, meaning they came out in 1987. We're going to talk about the original Lethal Weapon by Richard Donner, and then we're going to talk about The Untouchables, the Brian De Palma film, David Mamet written, uh, you know, just fun time. So uh, we're going to talk about both of those movies. That should be a whole lot of fun. And um, I'm still doing this 80s marathon, folks. This is this is real life here, okay? And uh, I've been watching uh, a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, I'm trying to think where we left off. I think maybe last week I talked about Blowout and Major League and Bull Durham, I believe, and Field of Dreams. I think is where I left off. So yeah, we watched The Untouchables, Casualties of War. I rewatched Big. Man, that movie's awesome. Gave that one. It's like a. It's it's a, it's only like a four out of five movie, which is still really great. That means I really like the movie. But, um, but dude, it's fucking great. It's better than I've ever thought it was. Just saying that right now. Anyways, I watched um, the Steven Seagal movie Above the Law. And listen, listen, this is not really a good movie, okay? But it's fucking awesome, dude. <laughs> it is fucking awesome. Man, this is like the kind of 80s action I've been waiting for. You know, I don't know why, it's just this is the thing I wanted. Man, we loved that. I watched Caddyshack for the first time in my life. Of course, I've seen stuff on TV and I've seen clips, but I've never watched it sat down from beginning to end. Uh, my dad was jealous that he wasn't here. I am definitely not as big a fan as he is. He loves that movie. I would love to sit and watch it with him, though. Um, but uh, what's his name? Uh, Ted Knight or something like that? God, that guy's funny. Holy crap. You know, you think like the Chevy Chases and the Bill Murrays and the and the Rodney Dangerfields and stuff are going to be the funny ones. And it's not. It's Ted Knight. That dude. I don't even know if I actually even laughed out loud at that movie. I found it amusing. But um, man, Ted Knight is so funny. That guy. I don't know. I was so into it. Uh, but it was fun to watch. Had a good time. And then we watched uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark last night, actually, for the first time in, my God, well over a decade for me. I haven't seen Indiana Jones in forever. Uh, very interesting movie. One day I would love to kind of do a breakdown of that movie. I got a lot more from it this time, but I also had a good time. Uh, I didn't love it as much as I thought I would. Like, I thought this was going to be, like, way, way up there. I thought I was still going to love it as much as I did as a kid, and I don't, but it's still really, really fun. 
I had a great time. Uh, this 80s marathon is just completely reviving my love for movies, okay? Because <laughs> I'm like seeing so many new things or re-watching a bunch of stuff I haven't seen in a long time. It's been an absolute, just complete, awesome thing. So uh, anyways, with that, uh, I'm going to go talk about Mad God real quick, and then we'll go see what Joe's up to. But uh, let's see what this movie's about. Mad God from this year. Technically, it came out in 2021 because it hit the festival circuit, but its wide release was this year, 2022, so it counts as a 2022 movie. Written and directed by Phil Tippett. Cast Alex Cox, Niketa Roman. Of course, there are a bunch of people in it um, doing voices or something. Uh, but uh, release date, June 16th, 2022. Came out last Thursday, basically, uh, so almost a week ago. And uh, this uh, this was streaming on Shutter. It had its premiere there. So if you have the Shutter streaming service, you can get it through uh, Amazon. You can get it through. I think you can probably even get it through. Um, not Twitter. What the fuck am I trying? To, um, uh, Hulu. What what the fuck just happened to my brain? Just. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, well, I don't know if you can do it through Hulu, but sometimes you can get subscriptions and stuff through there. I don't know where to find it, but I know that I have a Shutter subscription through Amazon. So that's how I saw the movie. Uh, but find out how you can see Shutter and how you can stream stuff through there. The Shutter subscription is super cheap. And so it might even be worth it just to like get one month's worth for whatever it is, like $5 or $3. I don't remember how much it is, but it's cheap. And then you can just watch a bunch of shit on there because they have a bunch of good stuff. But the 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 key is Mad God here. And uh, this was my most anticipated film of the year, as I've already said, whenever Joe and I did our lists earlier this year. And uh, we follow the assassin through a forbidding world of tortured souls. He is known as the assassin. That is the name. Decrepit bunkers and wretched monstrosities forged from the most primordial horrors of the subconscious mind. Every set, creature, and effigy in the macabre masterpiece is handcrafted and painstakingly animated using traditional stop-motion techniques. Mad God is a labor of love, a testament to the power of creative grit, and an homage to the timeless art of stop-motion animation. Ready your eyes. Ready your spirit. Prepare to meet your maker. That is a uh, that's that's quite a synopsis there. Uh, yeah, Phil Tippett is just like a god here. Okay, the the guy that made this movie. Um, but anyways, so uh, the film opens. I'm uh, actually before I start there. Let me let me preface here. I'm going to give you guys a bit of the story here because when you watch this, it's told very abstractly. I don't know if there's more than like two lines of dialogue in this thing. I mean, it's a very quiet visual experience. All right, and a lot of people I've read have missed the story. Like, what's going on? And so I was picking up on things, and, you know, I ended up reading about it. Luckily, I was on I was on the right page. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was following along. I didn't actually find it hard to follow along because the story really is not that in-depth. But if we wanted to, we could read into it, okay? We could read into uh, certain aspects of how these, you know, faceless drones uh, like walk around and keep getting just murdered uh, by just like random things falling off something getting hit by something you know just like splatting everywhere um, and looking at that as uh, even almost like a class uh, comment on class I mean I'd have to think about it because literally I just watched this as a fresh take but it'd be interesting to do kind of a, a, a an analysis of this movie I think there's more to it 
That said, the film opens with a tall figure shrouded in a jacket and gas mask known as only as the Assassin, descending into a ruined, hellish world via a diving bell. In his possession, the Assassin has a map of the world and a suitcase with a bomb which he has been tasked to detonate behind enemy lines with the or within the desolate excuse me, world. However, the map slowly deteriorates along the way, continuing his trek through the ruins, traveling through mutant lands. The assassin encounters, you know, captive electronic torture victims and uh, all measure of other horrors here. Eventually, he comes to find a city behind enemy lines, which is home, uh, which is home to an army of nameless, faceless drones, as I mentioned before, ruled by a baby babbling monstrosity with filthy teeth and seared flesh. The assassin halts for a moment here, pondering whether or not to take an ally before he decides to escape while he can and descends into the bowels of the city, leaving the drone to be killed for walking away from the others. The assassin discovers a mountain of suitcases like his own beneath the city bowels. These uh, contain bombs, uh, which his own will set off whenever it detonates. And as the assassin primes his bomb and prepares to set it off, sitting down to await his death along with presumably every other mutant and person behind enemy lines, the assassin fails to notice the creeping presence of a mutant of technological design. The mutant then pounces on the assassin, capturing him and dragging him away as the bomb fails to detonate. And this is how we set up Mad God, Phil Tippett's impressive 30-year passion project. Tippett was the visual effects guy on the first two Star Wars films, A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, Dragon Slayer, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Howard the Duck, the RoboCop trilogy, Willow, Jurassic Park, Stormship Troopers, all of the Twilight films, and I'm only naming the biggest of the movies he has done so many and you can look on imdb or wherever and just see all the crazy shit this guy's done i mean this dude has been around the block and have having worked across six decades okay he started in the 70s and he is still working now that's insane and he's still doing stuff he's like 70 or something and he he finally releases this passion project, which is just so cool. That's the kind of story that will like enhance the project itself. You know what I mean? <laughs> like like thinking about that, just it's like watching um, Richard Linklater's Boyhood and knowing they actually filmed this over twelve years, and it just something about just knowing that makes it abundantly more impressive to me. You know. But anyway, so um, when I watched when I started watching Mad God, I started getting big uh vibes of like uh panos cosmatos with stuff like beyond the black rainbow um or um even something like a guy madden film uh you know where he uses all these kind of what people might consider antiquated film techniques but he uses them in such a way that they're really powerful and the the cosmatos thing with with beyond the black rainbow though both of those movies are very different than mad god but um cosmatos uses like so many different styles of filmmaking in just that movie like the visual style changes and evolves throughout the movie so uh, drastically and mad god is not unlike that really we get a lot of stop motion it's beautiful brilliant the puppets are incredible i don't know what you call them dolls i call them puppets but whatever they are dude they are amazing like so I'm a D&D &D guy, right? I love creating stories. I am I run the games. I do the thing. 
and I just want to I want this to be an entire like dungeon of uh, of a campaign or something because just every creature is so awesome and they're just weird there's this one creature that uh is it's kind of uh, like warthog-esque but not really at all when you see it but just like the way it moves and then it's like its face is really weird and everything has these real buggy eyes but it just has like two it looks like two boobs hanging where its balls are and there's a point where it just starts pooping <laughs> like I, i'm not selling this movie with this right here but i'm just saying like when you see this shit though it's not uh it's not like weird in the way that it sounds you just hear me talk about it it's almost like awe. It's it's almost like awe inspiring. <laughs> like you're just like, who the fuck thinks of this shit? This is weird and awesome. Um, yeah, it just everything's super weird. And and these weird creatures, these weird mutated creatures, will have like, um, just so many details on their person. But they'll have like these big human teeth, or they'll have like these just like weird aspects to them that just sets them off and makes them that much more nightmarish. And I think nightmarish is the best way to talk about this movie. This is like sitting through, I think it's 84 minutes or something, an 84 minute, 80 plus minute uh, nightmare. It's just, it, it's, you know, it opens with a passage of Leviticus talking about how God is essentially going to de like destroy the world. And so we get the sense that this is the aftermath of that, or, or, or at least it's some some parallel kind of idea or, or, or reality. And so everything is just fucked. And it's like we're walking through layers of hell or something because people are being tortured and, uh, you know, uh, people are being captured and dismembered. And, I mean, it's just like a really vibe. I was actually eating, and in the first, like, 10 minutes, because I, I made lunch and I started watching this over my lunch break, and uh, I was eating, and I just had to stop eating. Because it was just like, it's not that it like made it like grossed me out, but it just, I did like lose my appetite watching it because there's some fucking gross shit in this. Okay. <laughs> Literally shit, but also other things like uh, it, it's, it's a wild, wild movie. But uh, you know, this is this. This is a movie that is largely visual. As I said, uh, Phil Tippett obviously is a visual, you know, designer basically and he creates a lot of these visual effects excuse me and so you know of course we're going to get that and watching this film it is very clear that the film is not really as interested in telling the story like in any kind of uh, uh any kind of way other than pretty subtly through nonverbal behaviors you know like you kind of put it together but it is the effects like that is the whole thing that's the whole movie that's what this is about so it's like watching, you know, a martial arts movie and not thinking the story is that cool. But it's like their focus is probably the martial arts sequences, the choreography, because that's like the major part of that genre. Right. And when you get a killer story, awesome. But if you don't have it, it's uh, we're talking about the the uh, uh, choreography like that's what we're doing. So with this, it's uh, much like that with the visual effects. You know, I, I've seen a lot of people dog the movie for for. Um, uh, the storytelling and not being able to kind of follow it. And it seems really loose. I think it's all there. I just think it takes more work than most people are probably going to want to put into it. And, um, but I'll, I'll get to that. I, I do want to say that something that actually brings the film, I don't want to say levity, but um, that gives it a heart 
or something, <laughs> like gives us some level of pathos uh, beyond just the visuals, is the music by Dan Wool, who uh, has an extensive composing history. Um, his first credit being Sid and Nancy, which is pretty awesome, a film by Alex Cox, who's also in this movie uh, as an actor. But I thought the movie, uh, I thought the music rather uh, added so much to this movie. Really made me feel more than the visuals would allow on their own, and it really, you know, raised the experience as a whole for me. I was really appreciative of that music, but the, I, I think if I had to come up with a con complaint, just to kind of tie into what I was saying before, I would say that um, the story is pretty is buried under the spectacle. I, I I will agree that it is buried. I will not agree it doesn't exist or that it is too complex to follow. I think more focus could have been put on a story so that we cared more. And I think that's th that is what I'm getting at with the complaint part. I, I think if I could just care more about the assassin or the last man, um, that would elevate this. I don't think the film needs that. I'm just saying if it were to get a higher rating or if it were to get more praise from me, if it were to get more replay value, I would love to have that. Um, but that is, again, clearly not what the film is particularly interested in. Um, the story's there, uh, but this would be difficult, I think, for a lot of people to get much from beyond the nightmarish quality of the film. I feel like I understood the story, as I said, but it wasn't enough to draw me in and keep me there. You know, rather the visuals did that. Like I said, you know, I mean, they are striking. And, uh... You know, the film's not interested in the story. It's interested in the effects, and there's a lot going on here. And it's not exclusively stop motion. Alex Cox plays the last man, and he's just him. Okay? Like, I had no idea Alex Cox was actually in the film. I thought he just did either a voice or a, or, or something like that, right? But no, he's it's like him. There's like real video footage in this movie as well. And they like Cosmatos or any of the other kind of more creative abstract filmmakers like that. Uh, in this, you know, Tippett uses multiple types of effects to accomplish stuff. Of course, the, the most notable being um, the stop motion stuff. But uh, there is a lot going on in this film and it is really, really impressive. So I think I'm actually just going to kind of almost leave it at that, you know. Um, this is a movie that, again, is visually stunning. If you're interested in watching something that is not your traditional film, that is something that is just providing a visual experience. I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is an art film, basically. Um, but it is so bizarre. It is so bizarre. And if you're, if you're interested in just kind of having new experiences in film, um, this is a direction you could go. Because uh, Mad God is totally, totally, 100% worth seeing. And I don't imagine this being on my top 10 at the end of the year. Um, just, you know, in terms of being like one of the 10 best films. But I wouldn't be surprised, depending on how the rest of the year pans out, if this didn't make my top 10 because it was and will likely remain the most unique and interesting experiences I had all year. I can't think of another film. Everything, everywhere, all at once is real cl real close in terms of like unique and interesting experiences. Um, I wouldn't say it's more unique than this, but uh, I do like to save places on my list for movies just like Mad God. Um, I gave this film a four out of five. If you have seen this, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, I hope you do. It is on Shudder. Uh, if you agree or disagree with me, please let me know your thoughts. 
and uh, I would be really interested to get your interpretations of how things played out uh, in Mad God. Let me know, Medium Cool Pod, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. I will be right back to talk with Joe Shearer about Lethal Weapon. All right, everybody, I'm here with Joe Shearer again. He's going to be a regular before you know it. <laughs> How you doing, dude? All right. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, um, I, I've gotten, I've made Joe a part of my 80s marathon, uh, by proxy just because what we're talking about today, as I've already told you folks, is the 35th anniversary titles. All right. And we picked two. I picked one. I let Joe pick one. Um, luckily both of which I've watched in this marathon over yeah. like the last week or so. So I'm pretty excited about this, but we're going to be doing lethal weapon and the untouchables. We're going to start with lethal weapon though. And uh, lethal weapons from 1987, again, 35th anniversary, uh, was actually last March to be more specific. I'll get there in a second, uh, directed by Richard Donner. Can't wait yeah. to talk about this guy. Um, <laughs> this guy did uh, Superman and the Goonies. It's written by Shane Black, another guy mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to talking about, who most re- more recently directed The Nice Guys and in the 2000s did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I just think both are just so great. Yes. Ah, anyways, uh, we'll talk about that. And then uh, the cast, uh, at least the core cast, Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, and Gary Busey. Mm-hmm. Release date was March 6th, 1987, with a budget of $15 million. And it grossed 120.2 mil. That's a big, big increase. So this was a huge, huge success. Uh, It is streaming on HBO Max if you are interested in seeing it. And uh, it's about veteran button-down LAPD detective Roger Murtaugh, who has partnered up with an unhinged cop, Martin Riggs, who, distraught after his wife's death, has a death wish and takes unnecessary risks with criminals at every turn. The odd couple embark on uh, on their first homicide investigation as partners involving a young woman known to Murtaugh with ties to a drug and prostitution ring. Um, this is also a really early. Um, no, I mean, there were a lot of buddy cop movies before this, but this was um, kind of a staple buddy cop movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? This yeah. really kind of uh, there were plenty before it, even in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was something about this one that was uh, that was special and it got people to the box office. Clearly, Joe, my question for you is uh, when did you first see Lethal Weapon? Yeah. And how does it hold up for you? Yeah. I So I saw Lethal Weapon um, about, I don't know right around just after I saw lethal weapon too. Uh, so, so uh, it, you know, if that, if that helps you anything with anything, um, I saw lethal weapon two in the theaters in 1989 with, uh, with my dad. And uh, it was instantly my favorite movie of all time. Um, and so uh, my dad was very much like, Oh, you haven't seen the original. We gotta, we gotta watch it. We went and rented it and watched it. And I was like, I love these movies. These are amazing. Um, yeah. So yeah, you, you know, you talked about it being the blueprint. I, I actually watched it with my kids uh, last night and I told them, you know, my kids are all teenagers now, um, just as an FYI, if, if anybody's wondering. And, you know, I, I told them that, you know, after Lethal Weapon came out, this is one of those things where um, every movie was Lethal Weapon. You know, every buddy cop movie that came out after Lethal Weapon was was trying to be Lethal Weapon in some way. So um, yeah, the, the days of, you know, 
the the French connection and you know like your standard like hard scrabble cops like your hard scrabble cops now have to have a sense of humor they got to make jokes if they do uh if they do three stooges references all the better so um yeah so th this was just like a, the kind of movie that really hadn't been seen I think before uh this one came out um you know they, they were they tended to be much more serious and this one of course is like you know they they stumble on a dead body and let's crack a joke and move on <laughs> it's yeah just, it, it's 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 funny you know watching it again it's it's pretty ridiculous but um it's a lot of fun so <laughs> it is yeah and i mean you have movies like uh with a an interesting uh dynamic between people like 48 hours and mm -hmm. and movies like that but none of them felt this way and none yeah. i don't think any of them accomplished the uh the amount of heart that this one gets to and we'll, we'll talk about some of our favorite scenes here shortly mm -hmm. but i want to talk a little bit about uh mel gibson first um for better or for worse Sure. Uh, Mo Gibson's this was his major breakout role in the U.S. He'd done movies before it mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. And of course, he was uh, famous in Australia. He did the Mad Max films and yeah. Gallipoli and all kinds of stuff going on mm -hmm. uh, with this guy. But he does Lethal Weapon. And this movie is a I mean, just turns him into a superstar here. Yes. And of course, you know, um, what's his name? Danny Glover had been doing stuff for well over a decade at this point on like a popular level as well as the color purple when did that come out do you remember yeah, exactly I, when I that think came that was 86 i think that was the year before i think, I think it was right before yeah. that's why 85 or 6 was in my mind so i'm pretty yeah. sure it was right before this so danny glover you know uh a known name and and what's funny is he's only in his 40s here but he acts like he's you know late 50s or something because <laughs> yeah, he's like the retiring cop you know yeah, what I mean? the, the movie opens on his 50th birthday yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and he's like forty-two or something in real life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his but kids, he plays way, it so well. His kids, by the way, stumbling upon him while he's in the bathtub, which is the weirdest and most uncomfortable thing that I <laughs> we watched it. And my first response to my buddy was, "There are not even near enough bubbles in there for me to ever let my kids in." Yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a bubble bath okay guys uh, there were a few little bubbles on top was, and i'm like this is fucking awkward yeah he was super dirty like that water was like was like almost like a like a dark gray <laughs> yeah yeah it was rough yeah but but the the important thing about this movie i want to start with though is you know mel gibson uh breaks out here huge success mm -hmm. uh danny glover obviously kind of cementing himself uh, as just like household name here, yeah. um, if if not already, he has reinforced that, right? Yes. Uh, but but the buddy cop thing, uh, I have a lot to say about this. But li like you mentioned, this is kind of an exemplar for me. I can think of a lot of, I can even think of a lot of other movies I like more. Mm -hmm. But when you say buddy cop, my brain still goes to Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Uh, I talked a little bit about this movie last week, but by no means any kind of extensive conversation but i believe i did mention that as a kid this was one of my favorite movie series yeah absolutely much like you it's really easy to like and you brought up the second movie which i'll say this first one is particularly different because if you were to go rewatch the second one which i don't expect you to have done mm -hmm. but if you rewatch the second one it feels way more like a traditional action kind of big movie you know what i'm saying yeah. Uh, and and uh -huh. this one this one really deals with characters and things like that, and I love that. I think that's part of what makes this so buddy cop, yeah. so to speak. So so tell me, uh, as far as buddy cop movies go, like that specific kind of uh, that uh, that specific trait or whatever you want to call it, 
how does this work for you, that relationship between Gibson and Glover and all of that, the buddy cop element? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. It's there's there's a little bit of um how how do I say this? A little bit of I don't know if I want to say pretension to it. it it's sort it's one of those deals where it's like, oh, these guys don't like each other from the start. And kind of for no particular reason. Uh, you know, that there's a there's a couple of things, you know, looking back on it, it it makes sense. Like this is gonna be the blueprint, right? The the one guy's a loose cannon, the other one is you know, is, is straight laced and buttoned down and literally trying to keep his head down and do nothing till he retires. Yes. And he's forced to be with this guy who's gonna make him do literally everything yeah, that he doesn't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so it, it's just it's funny because it it's the setup is so quick you know they like you said they they focus more on on the on the the backstory um you know as we're going along and it, it's this whole thing this whole intricate thing about vietnam veterans who come back home and they become heroin dealers and and they all happen to be mixed up with these two badass la cops um at least in their past and so you know, and of course the whole, you know, the whole circulation of Vietnam, there's a lot of kind of political things bubbling under the surface, which is, which is kind of fun later on, especially later on in the series when they're, you know, they're much more overt, overt, excuse me, about their politics. Um, but here it's, it's kind of background stuff. And, you know, there's, there's a sticker on the, on the Murtaugh's refrigerator that says yes. apartheid in South Africa, which is, dude, a- I saw that. It's toward the end, and that's like what the whole fucking second movie's about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, indirectly, you know what I mean. I, it made me wonder, like, did Shane Black, who's written all of them, like, did he was he planning a second one? You know yeah. what I mean? Because right. my understanding is just a real quick interruption. I'm sorry. Sure. Mel Gibson was supposed to was uh, they thought about killing him off in this one, mm-hmm. but they didn't. Yeah. Right, and then he became this huge star. Uh-huh. And then Shane Black wanted to kill him in the second one, which if you watch the second one, there's yeah. a perfect place for him to die. OK, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like Shane Black meant to kill him there, but the studio would not let him like that. <laughs> yeah. That's all I could think of watching. I don't know if that's yeah. true. That is purely an assumption. Uh-huh. Um, but when you watch it, it just feels like he was supposed to die there. Yeah. And um, because they were just going to do that. But they, they were money makers. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They were too yeah. big cash cows. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so it it yeah it's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. Although, you know, when I first watched this as a kid, now when I watched the second one, I got the you know I got the politics and I got that background. But you yeah. know, for some reason, Vietnam was was something of a mystery to me, especially as a kid. And all of that just kind of went over my head. I was like, oh, whatever, whatever this stuff. Okay, this is his old buddy, and that whatever they had the war, yada yada. Um, the other really interesting thing about kind of the backstory is they have this whole thing where they mention Air America, which went on to become a movie a couple of years later that Mel Gibson also starred in with Robert Downey Jr. Um, so that that was sort of an interesting little tidbit. Um, they, they just bring that up in the middle of the movie, um, you, you know, kind of perpetual 80s badass Tom Atkins is, is there as, as yeah. this weaselly, you know, this weaselly guy who's, you know, his daughter is in the he's in the, the center of the whole problem. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, Murtaugh's old war buddy who, and I love the, the scene early on when, when Tom Atkins are in his bank and he's just like, Roger, you owe me. I want you to find these guys and fucking kill them. Just kill them all. In front of everyone. <laughs> he's just like, he's like, 
man, like I'm a police officer. He's like, I don't care. Kill him. And he's just screaming in the middle of this crowded bank to kill these people. <laughs> but, but, you know, there, there's just all these just kind of silly touches like that. Very. It's so eighties so in a lot of ways too. Um, Honestly, dude, the, speaking of eighties, this is a great place to go real quick when you say yeah. this, because I'll talk about the buddy cop thing in a minute, but this is actually, uh, actually the stuff I have to say about buddy cop stuff is part of also favorite scenes. Sure. type of conversation so I'll, I'll kind of segue there eventually but uh the 80s part of it yes it does feel very 80s the soundtrack is the quintessential 80s action cop movie soundtrack you know what i mean like every fucking soundtrack has a saxophone yes you know what i'm saying <laughs> and and so it you know it has that and um i think you know whenever they first introduce rigs in a trailer by the beach mm-hmm. and he puts bullets in his gun i believe or something yeah and then like puts the gun to his head and he just can't do it right you know what i'm saying and you don't even quite know why yet you know what i'm saying i don't think so it's i think he just does it you're just like whoa um and danny glover is just exasperated with his family and everything all the time (laughs) like he's just a worn out dude all the time yes and you very quickly i mean you know just by the cover of the movie they're going to be partners. And so they play with that where from the very beginning, you know what this relationship, this odd couple relationship is going to be. But what I think is great is uh, I, I don't feel like they ever do anything in the first one, at least. The second one is way more cliche 80s. Uh-huh. But I think what they do about this is though it is very 80s, uh, I don't feel like they ever fall so far into 80s tropes mm-hmm. that it feels cheesy. Yeah, like or, or it's so bad it's good or or whatever kind of um, phrasing you want to use. Sure. I actually think they do some stuff really well here, like like notably more so than most 80s movies, because a great thing to watch, which also ties into Shane Black, because Shane Black actually acts in this as well. But look at Predator, for example. I don't know if you knew Shane Black was in that, but absolutely. Um, but like that movie is the cliche of the 80s. Mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying like if you yeah. listen to their dialogue and i think shane black even wrote that but it's like it's meant to be written like that. you know what i mean like they're just a bunch of tough guys arm wrestling in the air you know what yes. i mean like they're just ridiculous <laughs> uh, but this movie is different yes it has those moments yes um but i just it feels so much more believable uh, not believable it feels so much more um i'm much more susceptible to the heart in this movie mm-hmm. and the action in this movie and things more so than others. And this ties into favorite scenes. And I'll pass after I say this, I'll pass it off to you to yeah. see what some of your kind of notable scenes are. Maybe if you have any, sure. uh, and, and my favorite scenes in this movie, funny enough, one of my very favorites is when Riggs meets, uh, Murtaugh's family. Mm-hmm. There, dude, of all of the scenes in this movie. Okay. Yes. Why that is one of my favorites, all the way from when he first comes in to when they're drinking beer in the boat, okay? Yes. Like, it sets up so much, but that's the moment they become buddies mm-hmm. to an extent, right? But what it does is it develops Murtaugh as more than just an aging cop, yeah. and it develops uh, Riggs as more than just an unhinged psychopath mm-hmm. who looks at, like, killers who have, like, you know, machine guns 
and does like you said three stooges gags on him yes you know like that shit's super cheesy okay right yeah <laughs> like like yeah. that's the part i would throw into the this is so 80s it hurts yes. whenever he's like facing off with some drug dealer dudes uh. and he's doing like you know uh like He's acting like fucking Mo from yeah Deuces yeah he's slapping and poke I poke yeah him. yeah yeah so um I, it's you know that that stuff's silly and and it kind of gets to me a little bit yeah. um but I I feel like it really by the time he meets Murtaugh's family it really earns oh yeah your care like yes. I cared about these two characters and I'll tell you man a lot of buddy cop movies I might think the characters are cool but I rarely care about them yeah you know what I'm saying like usually uh-huh. it's just fun. Yeah, and honestly, looking at the second movie, I probably wouldn't have cared about them as much. But because the first one's there, mm-hmm. yes, I do. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It, that that actually that uh, the strength of that scene carries them through the whole franchise. You know, they they don't have to reestablish that really to any degree in the second, third, and fourth because you know that once the, you know once that is established, it was just kind of like it's there and. Yeah, but you're right. That is that's a really great scene in an action movie. It's it's sort of like a Jaws thing, you know. With with me, Jaws, my favorite scene is the one where, where Brody is talking to his, or is like sitting at the table with the son, and there's no dialogue. It's just them doing their. I think I've talked about it. They're just yeah. like making faces at each other, and this scene is like that too, where you know there there's a little bit of moving the plot along, but it's mostly you know uh, Murtaugh's oldest daughter eye sexing Riggs the whole time. You know, and it's, <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's it's just like that's half of the scene. And it, it just establishes so much uh, that for the relationships to come, you know, the younger kids, everybody picks up on it, of course. And the younger kids are are like do this little rap, this little 80s rap with with beatboxing. And, you know, it's just like God, when Murtaugh so, does his rap, it's terrible. I mean, it's yes. supposed to be, but it's like so awful. It's so I love bad. it. Yeah. And, and it, it establishes him, you know, in in most movies of this type in that time frame as well. The the main black character is going to be street smart and is going to be he's going to be a good you know rapper because rap was just kind of really hitting mainstream at that point. And the fact that he wasn't was you know again for its time was such a a fun little flip because you know you you would expect them to to put the black character, you know, especially in the eighties with, he's got to have some kind of street smarts or he's got to be witty and this and this and this, which, you know, and, and Murtaugh yeah. is just like the straightest white guy in the world, you know, even though he's, most, black. <laughs> he's so suburban that they're adding to their house. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. like they're not only just in the suburbs, they are spending enough money so they can stay there for a long time. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, oh, yeah. It's oh, not yeah. just a little suburban yeah they're literally cementing themselves in the suburbs yeah um yeah no you're you're that's 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 interesting yeah i i don't know what it is about these little scenes mm-hmm. um because another another little moment it's not the whole scene mm-hmm. but there's a scene after Riggs uh gets the jumper from the uh top of the building and he's uh-huh. and he's trying to get him to not jump and yeah. then eventually once they get the uh big airbag thing out yeah. Like uh-huh. he just jumps with him, and everyone right. thinks he's insane, including the jumper. Yeah, <laughs> the jumper's like, and um, <laughs> and Murtaugh gets fucking pissed. This is before their moment, and he's super yeah. mad, and mm-hmm. he gives him his gun, and he says, "If you're if you want to die, then why don't you just do it right here, right now?" Yeah. And Riggs is like, "Don't test me, dude." And they go into like you know that battle. Yeah. And then he pulls the trigger, but just as he does, Murtaugh throws his finger between the pin. Yeah. And 
uh, or the, uh, the what do you call that? Yeah. The, uh, yeah, you got it. Whatever yeah. the fuck. You know, he cocks the gun and yeah. then he stops it from firing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, that would hurt like a son of a bitch. Dude, too. that's the first thing I said <laughs> to my buddy. Dude, that would hurt so bad. Yeah. Like so bad. Yeah. Um, I used to have a little owl, you know, and it's like, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> that would, you're getting a blood blister at least. Yeah. Um, and it's going to really sting. I had, um, I had for short films I would use, I had real guns, but they were, they didn't work. You know what I mean? Well, like it, you had the weight. Uh-huh. Um, there were parts of them that were disengaged, so you couldn't actually put anything in there and fire them. Sure. Uh, and so, anyways, uh, but the you could cock it back and shoot it. And yeah. I, on a few occasions, got my finger mm-hmm. smacked by that. And that wasn't even the type of gun they have. Sure. They have a much stronger gun. So uh-huh. Like I don't know what that means in terms of uh, the hammer. But, anyways, uh, yeah. So, th- but that scene is so great to me. Yeah, because it's also a moment where Murtaugh like there are just so many great little scenes. I'm going to give credit to Shane Black, actually, here Mm -hmm. where there are these little scenes with these little moments that changed characters perceptions of things going on. Right. And it's it's never just exposition Mm -hmm. that I remember, at least I'm sure. I mean, there is exposition here, but yeah, uh, they he's a lot more creative Mm -hmm. about how he tells the story. Yeah. Uh, if that makes sense. And again, you know, you could sit there and Riggs could keep acting like Three Stooges guys and jumping off buildings. Um, <clears throat> but that's a really serious moment. The jumping off the building thing's funny. Yeah. You're supposed to laugh at this, right? Sure. But the yeah. gun to his head or in his mouth or whatever and pulling the trigger and Murtaugh stopping it, yeah. that establishes Murtaugh doesn't want him to die. It establishes Riggs doesn't give a shit if he dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it goes from funny to very serious. Yeah. And yeah. I just feel like these, the balance and the, the toss back and forth mm-hmm. uh, of, of tones like that is really important to why this is good. Mm-hmm. I didn't give you a chance to talk about scenes you particularly love though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what are some that you, that stand out to you? Yeah, there, there's a lot. I, I love, um, you know, and I, and I actually stopped this for my kids. I paused it so that they could see it, um, could see it. The um, the scene where we get introduced to Mr. Joshua, played by Gary Busey, legendary yeah. lunatic Gary Busey. And, um, it, you know, we, we meet the general. It, it just jumps in, you know, from it may have been from that scene, the jumper scene into this into a nightclub. Yeah. And, you know, there's this cheesy dude with a, a you know, a terrible mustache. Um, who's <laughs> where's my supply and he's like you guys are fucking insane and he's like you know there there's this thing about mercenaries like you're using mercs and i don't trust them and, he, and you know and the general is like hey my guys are loyal to me and he does this whole trick where he's like he makes mr joshua put his arm on a on a lighter you know that, that's lit like on a flame and hold it there and you know when i was a kid i always just thought of that as just like oh like this dude's a badass like you know he doesn't feel pain, but, but watching it again, more recently, you see that that that's a test of, of loyalty, you know, where he's like, he's in pain and he's like eyeballing this dude. What he's like, you're making me do this shit, man. Like, I'm like, don't cross me or I'm going to kill you. You know, yeah. you, know you, you see him like grimacing while he's holding, you know, while he's holding yeah. his arm. And that's, that's just such a crazy 80s scene, you know, and the, the kind right. of thing that's imitated over and over in every you know, every Lance Henriksen movie for the next 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. He's man. Gary Busey's great though. I love him in this. Yeah. Um, he is an eighties baddie Mm -hmm. for sure. Like to a T, 
Um, not super developed, but yet again, like what a great way to show that you don't want to fuck with this guy, but yeah. just fucking burn his hand. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. <laughs> like, like, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, my, my big thing, it's like Rambo four. Did you see it's just called <laughs> Rambo? It's like yeah. 2008 or whatever. Uh-huh. 2006, maybe. Yeah. And there are just like 300 murders in this yeah. thing. You know uh-huh. what I mean? And the bad guy is never developed. Um, all you see is him raid a village. Um, his men rape and pillage this place. Uh, he picks up a kid at one point and throws him in fire. Yeah. Like there's just fire. So uh-huh. I mean, he's they're making him out to be the worst. Now it's cheap heat, as we'll just to use the wrestling thing. Total sure. cheap heat. Let's yeah. just show him do terrible shit. And now we're gonna go murder the guy, right? Like, yeah. nah, there's no development there. I don't really care about this guy. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, though, everything he did was actually shocking. Like when yeah. he throws a fucking kid into the fire, like, <laughs> yeah. and so it's like at, on that level, it was so ridiculous that mm-hmm. I was like, "Fuck, dude, this is at least fun to watch." I mean, it's not fun to watch kids get thrown into fire. But my point is, like, this is fun to watch because I I can't predict what they're going to do with yeah. this guy because I didn't expect them to just start murdering children. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and there's something kind of exciting about the unpredictability. And I think with the way they set up uh, Gary Busey's character here, Joshua, mm-hmm. that's his name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when they set up Joshua, he is that way. It's just like, damn, this mm-hmm. dude, you could break his legs until he can't walk and he's just going to chop him off and crawl towards you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, absolutely. he's just if he's told to by the general, he's doing it, you know? Yeah, uh, it's 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 great, man. And and uh, so uh, um, continue if you have some more scenes. Sorry. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, there's yeah, that there's, scene. Um, you know, I'll I'll lead into the you know the the final hand to hand fist fight between Gary Busey and Mel Gibson is a great scene that we, I won't go into a ton right now yeah. because I'm sure we'll talk about it. But there's... talk about fucking eighties. Yeah, holy really. shit! That last scene. We'll oh, talk about man. it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and you know the this movie just and it and it's funny too. Um, again, it's it's been quite a while i think we i want to say we watched these for the fuck yeah film festival um two or three years ago um in the recent past and but you know it, it was fun watching these with you know with with a more refreshed sense of the conventions that they that they go into the you know the car chases where murtaugh's cars are just always just totaled like perpetually being totaled and it starts here where, you know, they're, they're out in the desert and there's just like machine gun fire and his station wagon is God. getting it. And, yeah. you know, there's, and there's, there's a bunch of stuff. Anything with, with Murtaugh's family is just gold, right? It's just, and it, and it's funny because you think, you know, as for me, especially as a kid, I'm watching these movies and I'm like, come on, let's get to the shooting. Let's get to the action. But here <laughs> yeah. you kind of savor those family moments and the little moments where, you know, they're just hanging out and having fun. And you're like, man, I'd like to just hang out with these guys. Yeah. Um, it also builds the motive for why Murtaugh would go to the extents to which he does yes. to save them. And now anyone could say, well, it's his kid. Mm-hmm. His kid gets kidnapped and he's going to go save them. He's a father. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's just not quite frankly, most parents would probably just call the cops and mm-hmm. be sad about it until their kid got back. Like, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like it, they, they wouldn't actually put themselves in harm's way, mm-hmm. form a plan like some might. And they might, people might think that they would do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. But in reality, you'd probably call professionals <laughs> yes. or you'd probably get other people involved because you're too emotional about it. But yeah. instead like Murtaugh gets rigs, a sniper rifle and yeah. it's like, hang out back here. I'm going to go get my daughter. Like, yeah. 
it's it's even more believable and the motive is there because of everything before which i again credit to shane black but continue yeah how, how about the the shooting range scene that was a lot of fun too kind of you know it's it's it was a very kind of throwaway scene again it's just yeah it's re- i think there's maybe some talk about the plot you know they're expounding on a couple of things but it's you know in the in the midst of it they're they're doing target practice and and you know Riggs had already mentioned to to Myrtle that he had in in Laos he had killed some guy from a thousand yards in high wind and you know and so you know Myrtle is like I'm going to try him and so he you know he he puts his target up and he backs it up and and pops off a couple and and gets or he no he just won and he gets it like dead in the center like right on the nose of the target. And uh, Riggs then backs it up and, and finishes the smiley face, you know, from, yeah, from yeah. even much, much further away. And, you know, it's it's just like, it's just a silly little scene. But again, it was just fun. And it's just them, it's them being 80s and witty and, you know, yeah. and it all just, it all fits. Um, yeah, 80s for sure. <laughs> yeah. 80s for sure, dude. Uh-huh. Um, I, 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 w- I want to jump over to, um, uh, I do want to talk about the end. The, sure. the, the fight scene, but I want to do that in a second. Yeah. I want to ask you your relationship with Shane Black and Richard Donner here. Yeah. Uh, Shane Black has done uh, a, a ton of great stuff. Like I said, he's done Nice Guys. He's done Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm-hmm. He also uh, wrote and I believe directed Iron Man 3, which uh, is pales in comparison, in my opinion, to his other work. But, uh, you know, he wrote uh, Last Action Hero, Last Boy Scout, Monster Squad, all of the Lethal Weapons. Um, like I said, Iron Man three, yep. um, the Even Long the Kiss Goodnight. Didn't he like? Didn't he write or direct like one of the sequels to the, one of the Predator sequels, the Adrian Brody one? I think. Oh, uh, let me see. Yeah, the, yeah. the Predator. Yeah, this is the yeah. one that I think Rodriguez actually directed. Okay, did he? Did he um, like that one? Oh then? no, no, no! No, you're right. You're right. I have. I'm thinking of something else. Shane Black. Okay uh definitely directed the predator yeah, yeah i forgot yeah, about yeah. that my bad well then now i don't know what i'm thinking of when i think of robert rodriguez he remade something uh-huh. i'll figure that out later the point is um uh yeah the, i think the nice guys and kiss kiss bang bang are just as good if not better buddy cop movies and though in both movies not both people are cops okay <laughs> but it is the buddy cop thing though you know what i'm saying like yeah. it's still the same thing and kiss kiss bang bang val kilmer is the uh is the cop and uh robert denny jr i believe is playing an actor mm-hmm. because of yeah. a series of events i don't need to get into but he's playing an actor trying to be a cop so you know he's just riding along but it still works as a buddy cop movie same thing with uh with the nice guys you have a private investigator mm-hmm. um and a muscle who works for some guys. Yeah. Uh, and I think I want to say he used to be a cop or something, but either way. Um, and, but they work as a buddy cop, like a detective type of thing. Yes. And so it's, uh, he kind of continued this and it's fucking great. Um, I, I really, I, I love Shane Black's writing when he really gets to like run with it. How yeah. do you, uh, do you have anything to say about Shane Black? Do you have any yeah. feelings about the work that do you have a relationship with his work? Anything? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's he kind of he kind of hits me as as an underappreciated writer. You know, he you know, and yeah. I'm I'm just looking through his filmography now. Of course, the Lethal Weapon movies are massive hits, but he did the Monster Squad, the Last Boy Scout, Last Action Hero, Long Kiss Goodnight. You know, you mentioned Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and the Nice Guys, like two very good movies that 
that are pretty under the radar. Um, Iron Man three, you know, like you just mentioned it, and I I like Iron Man three a lot. Sure. It's, you know, it, it's a it's a departure for for the Iron Man character, but it's it still is is solid, and it, it's one that's that's pretty polarizing. Um, you know, in in the Marvel pantheon, but you know, those are those are all solid movies at, at the very least, just solid movies that have a lot going for them that that people just kind of like, oh yeah, that movie, oh yeah, and then you know, of course, Last Action Hero was kind of a famous flop, but again, it's a it, it was a movie ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Dude, that movie is terrible, though. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it, it's pretty bad. But, but yeah, but yeah, no, you're right. It was yeah. it did it did a lot of things though. That's fine. Yeah, uh. yeah. But, but I mean, you know, there there are that you know that what it did was you know was very meta, um, and and it you know it was something that that people played with to more success later on. But it, yeah. it was it's to me it's kind of a spectacular failure. You know, it's something that yeah, has sure, sure yeah I see, I, I see you yeah yeah well um so yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, shane black i i feel the same way like i said whenever he can actually like take the reins and kiss kiss bang bang and the nice guys uh specifically comes to mind mm-hmm. uh you know he is he's able to do that he has several acting credits the one that's probably most notable is the he plays hawkins in, in predator mm-hmm uh, the original, which I had no idea until I watched Predator about a week ago or something. <laughs> yeah. I saw his name in the credits, and then I, but I didn't notice who he was. Yeah, and he's so thin, and and like his face is real slim, mm-hmm. um, more so than the pictures I'm used to seeing. So I didn't even recognize him, and then I realized <laughs> it was him, and then I put it together like, oh yeah, yeah, that's totally Shane Black. Yeah, man, he's great. But I, I want to talk about Richard Donner, who I have a feeling you have a. Yes. Closer relationship to just from growing up and watching a lot of those uh, those movies. I'm going to run down a few movies here that he did, uh-huh. and because uh, I don't have a great relationship with Donner, I think he's cool. Yeah, uh, I think Donner is a bit. Um, some of his style is a bit outdated, in my opinion. Uh, he feels very much like a '70s director, mm-hmm. an early '70s director making '80s movies. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes, not always. I think the Goonies is great. I just rewatched that with my daughter, actually, yes. uh, and that's fun. And of course, Lethal Weapon is good. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, he he did a ton of stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna start early and go or uh, like more recent and go back. Okay. Um, you know, he did uh, Lethal Weapon Four, Conspiracy Theory, which as a kid and a teenager I loved. Another Mel Gibson. Yeah. Uh, movie he did Assassins, Maverick, another Mel Gibson movie. Yes. Uh, Lethal Weapon Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he do all the lethal weapons? He, he did. did all of them. He directed all of them. I actually didn't yeah. know that. I only thought he did the first two. Oh no! Um, but yeah, so he did all the lethal weapons. Uh, he did a music video for Sting featuring Eric Clapton. In case mm-hmm. anybody wanted to know, but he did Scrooged. He did the yes. the Goonies. He did uh, Lady Hawk, Superman Two, Superman One. He yeah. directed the original Omen. The Omen, which is a, a, a big deal. That's probably. Uh, one of the more kind of widely notable movies. He did a ton of TV prior to that. Yeah. Um, but this, I mean, you know, you don't, you can't really sleep on this guy's mm-hmm. history. He has a pretty lengthy filmography. What do you? Yeah. What's your relationship with him? I mean, did you grow up? Whether you knew who Richard Donner was or not, I mean, did you grow up with his movies? Were these staples for you? Oh shit! Yes. Yeah. I mean, let let's start with Superman. Um, you know, it's you know one of the formative movies of my life. You know. Uh, for a lot of reasons, um, you know, it, it's, and, you know, you, you can look back on that movie and look at the, there's, there's a lot of different weird things going on, but, but boy, that's, you know, that's the granddaddy. 
Um, and here's the one that you you skipped over that I absolutely love is the toy from. I was just about to say, uh, let yeah. me guess, it's the toy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason, and you know uh, another movie dealing largely with race, and it's it's a weird sort of it's sort of an uneven movie. It, it, it kind of veers back and forth from like this pretty like prescient kind of racism, you know, subplot or not even a subplot. It's like the main plot of the film, but there's a lot of like, kind of like smart things going on with dealing with race. And, you know, it's, it's about basically about, if you're not familiar with it, it's about, uh, you know, Jackie Gleason is, is a, a, a million, a Southern mil- millionaire. And he owns, I don't know, he owns like, uh, this chain of department stores and he has a son, you know, he's divorced, uh, remarried to a, uh, a an ex go-go dancer. <laughs> and, um, but his, he's got a young son who he sees for like two weeks in the summer. That's all he gets. And so he, you know, being the, the, the Southern businessman that he is basically just tries to buy him everything. And yeah. so um, about the same time his son's coming along, he hires a, his uh, company hires a, uh, a guy, uh, a black man played by Richard Pryor to, to be a janitor in a store. And the, the kid sees Richard Pryor, or, you know, see Jack Brown is his name, sees him uh, kind of goofing around in the store and is like, that's what I want. So he buys his son, a black man, to be his friend. And so there's all of this, you know, all of this race, you know, stuff going along. Then you find out Jackie Gleason's character has ties to the clan, and there's a lot of like stuff there. But it kind of interspersed among this is this weird, like, almost like Buster Keaton-ish kind of goofy comedy where, you know, there's a scene where Richard Pryor's riding a bike and he's got a Walkman on and there's just like, he's causing car accidents behind him, like without knowing it, he's, he's inches. It's just weird kind of uneven, strange comedy, but interspersed there's all these um, kind of smart uh, character things. And then a really sweet relationship between Richard Pryor's character and, and the boy played by, um, the kid who played Flick in the Christmas story, I think his name was Scott Schwartz, the, the redheaded kid that gets his, the kid that gets his tongue stuck to the pole um, yeah. in a Christmas story. Um, and, and when I was a kid, man, that's, that was like a fantasy thing. You know, for me, it was like, he had video games and pinball machines and everything in his bedroom, you know, anyway, but um, um, there's just all these little great moments with them. Um, kind of interspersed with all these other larger themes that is was just is to me is super underrated um, in a movie that's ultimately not great but was very watchable to me as a kid. It was one of those kind of early HBO staples, um, and I love that movie. Um, you, you know, The Goonies, of course, is another seminal movie in my life. Um, uh, and of course, all the Lethal Weapon movies, Scrooge again, which you mentioned, um, is uh, a bit of an underappreciated movie, I think. Um, there's just there's just a lot of things maverick also is a movie i like a whole lot um that that was a very watchable movie for me from the kind of the mid 90s but um yeah he just he's a good solid blockbuster type director for his day um has a lot of just solid he has some stinkers you know there's 16 blocks and i don't even know timeline i'm looking at that i don't even know what that movie is but (laughs) yeah i only know the i only know the cover yeah because uh, i worked at a video store yeah, so and this was yeah. uh yeah, this was there. <laughs> but uh but yeah, he yeah, so I I had a solid relationship with with uh with old Dick Donner. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah. 
Dick Donner. Yeah, uh, the movie that stuck out to me when I was younger was Conspiracy Theory. I need to go uh-huh. back and rewatch it. Yeah. It's from 1997, and it has uh, Mo Gibson, Julia Roberts, and Patrick Stewart. Yeah. And Patrick Stewart's like the bad. He's the yes. baddie bad. Uh-huh. Um, and I just thought he was so awesome. Yeah. And I loved Mel Gibson's acting like growing up, just like any movie with him, Maverick, any of those. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I was a fan. So. Yeah, Richard Donner has a, a pretty lush history. I'm sure we'll talk about him again sometime on the show. But um, but I thought I would just kind of give some room to talk about that because he has too much. Uh, he has too much to not talk about. So to wrap this up here, I want to talk a little bit about the the final scene. You, you seem like you wanted to say something, so I'm going to let you start it. But I'll give you my two cents on it. Yeah, after. yeah. So the the thing with this series of movies, if you just look at Lethal Weapon as a franchise, there's a couple of really solid kind of hand-to-hand fighting scenes and I, I'm, I'm going to point to this one which you know in its day especially was really i you know i remember seeing this just this scene as a kid i hadn't even seen the whole rest of the movie and it just felt so visceral and real and you know there's like the you know uh, mr joshua like kills some cops and their car like knocks into a fire hydrant and there's water spraying everywhere and into Murtaugh's front yard and there's just this drag out fight between the two of them and, and Murtaugh is like hey I'm in charge here you let them fight <laughs> you know and it's yeah. just like these two guys are fighting it's like a vendetta and it was just I mean it it doesn't stand up as well as um you know like today there are a lot of you know kind of memorable fight scenes it doesn't maybe stand up uh, today but for its time it was super you know super rough and it was a uh, uh, it, it's it's a pretty you know there's a lot of close-ups and a lot of just like solid punches and to the ribs and it, it felt real it didn't feel yeah. like martial just crazy martial arts necessarily there's just a lot of like up close and i'm gonna just beat the crap out of you um, <laughs> yeah yeah there's uh it, it's interesting because it's like just the most fucking 80s ending to a movie yes! Be- yes! And, and, the, and not because of the fight scene because murtaugh like somehow People don't just go over Murtaugh and stop the fighting and arrest the bad guy. Right. They just stand around and let them fight. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's ridiculous. Yes. That would never happen, yeah. ever. Right. And so, like, it's just the most, that's your suspension of disbelief 80s movie shit oh, there, yeah. right? Oh, But yeah. it's great. And and it, it, again, going back to Shane Black's writing, you know, it ties into Mel Gibson's past. Because Joshua comes from the same outfit that he was a part of. They have the same tattoos. Yep. There's that great scene where uh, they talk to those uh, kids in the neighborhood, those neighborhood kids. Alfred, um, glasses. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they uh, they point at his tattoo and they're like, he had one like that. And, yes. uh, you know, they build that whole thing up throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, Riggs is going to square off with this guy. And, of course, Murtaugh's, well... He doesn't do anything because he knows how much it means to Riggs because we've seen them develop. But yeah. but like Murtaugh's not going to jump in unless he has to because mm-hmm. he's doing as little as possible. We've already established this. Yes. Uh, he's ready to retire, even though this franchise goes on for another at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, yes. <laughs> so he has to be 60, uh-huh. I guess, in storyline. Yeah. Um, and then, and but then no. he actually fights in the most dangerous situation with Jet Li. Yeah, which you know is a movie, yeah. which is a scene I want to talk about sometime because I love that scene. Yeah, that's the fourth one. Maybe we'll do uh, since there are three others of these. Maybe one day we'll do a Lethal Weapon series. We'll just watch yeah. all of them and uh, 
and go that way. Um, yeah, thirty-five years old. I think it. I think it's still a, a fun movie. Yeah, really, really good time. Uh, and uh, I'm really glad I rewatched it again. It was kind of a blast from the past for me because mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it in a, a, quite a while. Yeah, yeah. And as a kid and a teenager, these were among my favorites. So it's it was really fun rewatching these. Um, hey, if you're listening to this and you agree or disagree, please hit us up, Medium Cool Pod, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And uh, let us know what you think of Lethal Weapon. I'll even accept uh, comments on the series as well, if you have feelings. Or Richard Donner, Shane Black, whatever. Just talk to me. Uh, We'll be right back in just a minute with The Untouchables. How's that sound? All right. The Untouchables, 1987, of course, 35th anniversary, almost to a T here. I mean, it is, uh, we're recording this on June 20th, so uh, uh, the day before this episode releases, uh, June 3rd, 1987 is when The Untouchables, so uh, to the month at least, Yeah. Uh, 35 years, directed by Brian De Palma, written by David Mamet, which I did not fucking know. <laughs> Uh, but going into it, I'd seen it before, but I just I didn't know who David Mamet was when I watched this the last time. It's been that sure. long. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was crazy. Based on a book called The Untouchables by Elliot Ness and Oscar Fraley. Uh, cast is Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, Robert De Niro, Andy Garcia, Charles Martin Smith, and Patricia Clarkson's first feature film. Yeah. I was so happy. I I like recognized. I was like, no way. And I like looked. Yeah. It was the first one. Like I said, released, <clears throat> excuse me, June 3rd, 1987. Budget of $25 million. Made $106.2 million. I would call that a success. This is so. streaming on HBO Max. And it's about young treasury agent Elliot Ness, who arrives in Chicago and is determined to take down Al Capone. A really, really high standard there. Yeah. I'm choking myself for some reason. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah, so he's really setting the bar. But it's not going to be easy because Capone has the police in his pocket. Ness meets Jimmy Malone, a veteran patrolman and uh, probably the most honorable one uh, one on the force. He asks Malone to help him get Capone, but Malone warns him that if he goes after Capone, he is going to war. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love that. Of course, um, Malone is Sean Connery. Uh, Costner's Elliot Ness here, uh, the one of the people that wrote the book because this is based on uh, true of uh, I think this is based on true events. So, mm-hmm. um, anyways, this movie is a De Palma movie. Uh, I'm gonna start <clears throat> before I ask you directly about this movie, Joe. I'm gonna pass it off to you and just say, what is your relationship with Brian De Palma? Yeah, and uh, where does this fit into his filmography based on what you've seen? Yeah, so my my relationship with with De Palma is a little is a little less than you know if we're going to even compare him to to Richard Donner. Um, you know, I I knew him as a kid from you know like Dress to Kill and you know Body Double was you know was a thing back in the day for me. <laughs> you know, it was um, you know Carrie of course, um, but. Yeah, I and and uh, the Untouchables is one. I'm trying to remember when I actually saw it. I did not see it when it came out, and I think it was several years after it came out that I actually saw. It. I don't even remember. I know that I have seen it, um, and I yeah. and it's and it's a you know it's a memorable movie. It's not like um, you know it's not like it's a you know a movie that 
you know, was not, was notable, you know, under the radar, not notable. It was a huge deal, a huge hit, um, you know, especially with Costner and Sean Connery and, you know, Andy Garcia, but, and De Niro, but, um, but I honestly, I don't remember the first time I've seen it. I haven't seen it multiple times, um, but um, yeah. So my, my, most of my relationship with him was, was later on, you know, and it was stuff like um, uh, Scarface, which I saw more as an adult, um, you know, stuff like, and I'm just kind of going through a lot of sure. like, kind of, boy, some of his movies I'd consider failure, Snake Eyes and Mission to Mars. I mean, Mission Impossible, of course. Um, Carlito's Way, you know, was a movie I remember seeing um, on on video, um, but like, you know, it was like a big thing to see it. Um, yeah. But yeah, but it, I had a sort of lesser, kind of lesser relationship with him, if, if you want to call it that, um, than than with some other people. His his movies, I think, skewed a little more. Uh, there, he he makes movies that I think adults enjoy more than you know than my my kids' sensibilities, you know, in the eighties, um, but you know there this movie is it's it's just funny watching this movie because it man it is very De Palma isn't it um <laughs> well so so I want to speak on that actually uh yeah. you and I watched Blowout for the podcast at one point uh-huh. so you've seen that um this is interesting my buddy and I doing this 80s comedy we watched Dress to Kill we watched Blowout we skipped Scarface because I'd watched it recently and he was yeah. familiar mm-hmm. we watched Body Double um I skipped Wise Guys as well because I'd never seen it and yeah. I was trying to cut our list down because <laughs> i had like well over a hundred movies uh on this yeah. list and yes, it's like it we gotta yeah we gotta cut this down so i didn't watch the wise guys but we watched uh uh, uh dress to kill blowout body double untouchables and casualties of war which he did oh. after this yeah and um i had never seen casualties of war yeah but all the others i'd seen mm-hmm. and the untouchables is a movie that i have never liked in the past that much i never i didn't hate it but it was just it was whatever. Like, yeah. it was just a very kind of neutral movie for me. Mm-hmm. So going into this, I was really excited because I just watched a bunch of De Palma stuff leading up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm also showing my buddy who I'm watching this with. I'm saying, like, like, do you see the split focus there? It's a big De Palma move. Yes. <laughs> you know, split focus, split uh, screen stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, did you did you uh, see this uh, like nonverbal storytelling scene, like in dress to kill. There's a scene where um, the uh, I'm forgetting her name, something An- Angela D'Angelo or something. <laughs> I don't fucking remember her name. Uh, A- Angela. Uh, Angie Dickinson. Dickinson. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I was like, dude, dude, there's uh, it's somewhere. Yeah. But anyways, uh, but she's walking through this, um, this museum mm-hmm. and it's like, a long scene it's like seven minutes or something and there's no dialogue she's just walking but he's really good at like throwing things in the background mm-hmm. and like telling stories without words yeah. and so you know we watch blowout and there's a very distinct scene of that uh where uh all of his tapes are ruined and so uh, there's this great kind of long scene uh, body double has a great scene where the main character is chasing uh, this woman that he's like peeping tomming on Uh, but he's following her to try to keep her away from this guy he thinks he's going to try to hurt her Mm -hmm. and uh he follows her through this mall and that scene is the exact same thing as the the art uh the museum scene you know what i mean so like there are these little de palma things that i think of including the music but let's talk about all of these things because uh watching the untouchables even his split focus Mm -hmm. is like a 
billion times more subtle. Like I almost didn't catch it at times and my buddy didn't even catch it. Yeah. Or, um, <clears throat> you know, any sequences. Uh, he does the first person sequence thing a lot mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of his movies. And this one he does whenever the, the quote unquote bad guys, uh, the gangsters uh, are the gangsters rather are trying to get into Sean Connery's house. Yes. Right. So you see all the first person uh, stuff, which is super effective. <clears throat> and in blowout and body double and and things like that whenever those are uh, sorry dressed to kill i think actually all three of them have those but yeah. when you when he does the first person thing it feels like fucking halloween uh-huh the carpenter movie you know what yeah, i mean yeah. uh-huh. but in in casual or in uh the untouchables it feels so different it feels there's like a sophistication to yes. the way that he films this you know what i mean like it, it just feels different and the music normally he has uh, this dude named um, uh, Pino Dinaggio, I think's his name, mm-hmm. and he's the fucking worst. I bury this guy every time I I can because <laughs> he's just the fucking worst. I hate his scores; uh-huh. they're painfully cheesy, mm-hmm. over dramatic. Yeah. My buddy jokes because he can't help it. He's just like, dude, I feel like every time music hits, whoever's on screen's gonna start fucking, and it's real awkward when it's kids. <laughs> Because it just sounds like sexy music or something. Like every time they come on, yes. like we're about to watch softcore porn or something. Mm-hmm. But then in this one, he gets Ennio Morricone, dude. Yeah. Holy fuck. What a master. Yeah. So you even get, he still does these kind of cheesy scores in here. Mm-hmm. But it's like, not. it doesn't feel nearly as terrible. It's actually really fitting. Yeah. You know, but it still feels like De Palma. So it's like in many ways, like, yes, this is like a very De Palma movie. Mm-hmm. But watching it, I was actually shocked by just how kind of sophisticated uh-huh. and that's like the word that comes to mind for some reason. I don't even yeah. know if that's like even a fair term, but mm-hmm. like there's something like sophisticated and advanced for De Palma. He's yes. all there, but everything's kind of been like pulled back just a little bit. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that would be studio or I don't, I don't know the story behind it. Yes. But I really, I really uh, dig that. I'll, I'll pass it off to you by saying, uh, this was by far the best screening of the Untouchables I've ever had, uh-huh. um, and I actually really enjoyed this. <laughs> okay, so right. so my my question, which I often start with you on, is um, is how did this hold up for you? Yeah, yeah. So it, weirdly, I had kind of an almost an opposite kind of reaction um, to this movie. That I, you know, I, it's been years since I've seen it. I think I've just seen it maybe once. Maybe I've seen it twice, um, but you know, I, I kind of held it in this high regard um, as, you know, kind of this masterful kind of film in my head. And then I watched it again and, and I was surprised by how sort of lackluster at times the, the sound effects were. And Kevin Costner's performance felt kind of stilted and wooden, which is kind of a hallmark of Costner, honestly. Uh, especially during this time frame, there's a lot of like oh, he's got that. We'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah we can talk about that. But um, Con- Sean Connery was not even trying in this movie. And- not fucking at all, dude. <laughs> and and it's funny because I'm not going to even say that was an. I'm not. Don't even mean that in a critical way because he's still fucking owned. But he's just like like he just doesn't give a shit in this movie. He's just like ah, whatever. I'm just gonna like drop some racial epithets and then I'm going to like punch somebody in the face. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, and but he still owns the screen, even though he like clearly doesn't give a shit about what he's doing. Uh, and it, it was just, it's, 
it's pretty hilarious just watching. There's times when I just laugh out loud. I laughed out loud just seeing how goofy he was. Um, but Dude, we did too. Don't think you're alone. <laughs> My God. Yeah. Like it, there's some real cheesy shit. Like when they first, uh, when they first meet, um, I'm looking his name up now. Cause I already forgot it. Uh, Andy Garcia. Oh. And uh, they're like, you know, he basically just starts using like racial slurs and calling his people a problem, meaning yeah. Italians. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, like Andy Garcia, like straight up pulls a gun. He's yeah. like a rookie. <laughs> and he just pulls a gun on on uh connery and connery's like i like this one you know and 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 (laughs) just like walks away and it's just Uh fucking cheesy Uh shit but when you watch a bunch of De Palma shit back to back there's a lot of fucking cheesy shit so like my buddy and i are just losing it over some of the stuff we just think it's really funny because we've been watching it and it's just like feels normal Mm -hmm. yeah 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 just because we've been watching so much of his shit lately (laughs) Uh, but no, no, no. I think you're. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think also it came from our expectations beforehand. Uh-huh. Like my bar was so low. Yeah. And yours may have been uh, relatively high. Yes. Um, but I'll be curious to see if we end up uh, somewhere in the same area. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the other thing that kind of hit me weirdly more in this movie than with Lethal Weapon was that, man, like if you watch this movie with a modern lens, like, these guys don't give a damn about anybody's civil rights either. Like they're just like punching no. people. And like, you know, like I, I, I thought the, you know, the, the part about, you know, how they were sort of like self-consciously, they kept like harping back on, Hey, we're going to get him for tax evasion. Like that was, that was kind of fun. You know, Charles Martin Smith's character is an accountant and he keeps doing that. I interviewed Charles Martin Smith once, um, which is a, a, a fun little name drop I can do here um, that I'll talk about in a little bit maybe, but um um, it, it was fun how he he just basically like shows up a lot. He's like, "Hey, tax evasion!" And you know, at first it's like Connery's laugh or uh, Kevin Costner's uh, Elliot Ness just laughs at him, and then he's like, "Ah, that's hilarious!" And then later on, he's like, "Okay, let's do that," you know. But yeah. but then in, interspersed in between, they're like they're just like walking up and like kicking doors open and like you know basically like, dragging people out by their hair, and it's like. Uh, you know they if some they don't like something they just pull out their gun and shoot somebody at times it's just like i'm just like yeah. jesus like this is like uh, i i get you know the the modern thing of people hating cops <laughs> you know it's like of course yeah but yeah it's uh it's interesting because of course this is from the 80s mm-hmm. uh so you're gonna get a lot of that over the top stuff but then at the yeah. same time it depicts something from what the 20s yeah because it's yeah. during prohibition mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, or at the tail end. So I guess I don't remember exactly when that ended, but, uh, anyway, so the point is, uh, yeah, there's, uh, I don't think they probably did give a fuck no. in the 20s oh, no. yeah. Yeah. about and, what was going on, especially if it had something to do with someone who was causing such a big issue, like the bigger the fish, the less they give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's funny looking back, like they have to, they have to push on, um, Al Capone's like brutality because he just like straight murders people. Cause it's like, if, if you look at that again, looking at it through even a, the eighties lens, it's like, <clears throat> Hey, they're, Hey, you know, what's, what's Al Capone doing? Oh, he's opening bars and letting people drink. And it's like, that was against the law. And so they have this very, you know, steadfast, like, you know, staring off camera, like, but it's illegal. It, it doesn't matter. It's illegal. and so there's that whole thing but then they have to also have to be like oh you know maybe we should have you know capone like crack some dude in the head with a baseball bat 
<laughs> you know, just to... that was awesome though. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was, was awesome. That was rough too. Yeah, yeah, it's brutal. It's yeah. brutal, and and it's funny. I, I watched a, an interview with De Palma talking about getting um uh uh Bobby De Niro, as mm-hmm. he'd say. Uh, in on the on on the gig here uh-huh. and he said that de niro like refused to learn his lines <laughs> like i don't think he ever was like i won't do it I, he just never did like he just wouldn't no matter how many times De Palma talked to him right so <clears throat> every time he was in hair and makeup to get like to look like uh, the capone get up or whatever yeah. uh, i guess De Palma would just sit in there with the script and just run lines with him <laughs> like for the two hours or whatever it was to do all the makeup or three hours yeah um and uh yeah he just didn't give a fuck and whenever he did it too it took him like a long time to agree to do it as well it wasn't just like a quick thing it was i mean de niro was at the top of his game at this point he had a huge pedigree prior already absolutely and then um you know and now he's like a top dog and uh i and de palma basically said when de niro after three or four weeks finally got back to him said "Ah, i could do this um it's gonna cost you <laughs> and uh De Palma was just like luckily we were with the studio yeah, <laughs> like making really. this because they, they'll uh probably bite I, I was gonna say I, so. I I found De Niro to kind of be awful in this movie too like he he was like Sean Connery a little bit he just didn't give a damn about what he was doing and he didn't seem like he gave a shit no. yeah he was just like mugging for the camera doing that thing he does with his chin and his lip and he's just like hey you know and I'm like Okay, I mean you're De Niro, but yeah. <laughs> all right. I want him dead. I want him dead. That's yeah. what he keeps saying over and over. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I mean he doesn't. It, it's a name drop mm-hmm. almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he, I think, you know, I personally, well, l- let me say it this way. I, I like De Niro in this because he's so caricatured. De Niro. Yeah. It's like watching Christopher Walken in like Seven Psychopaths. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like he's just the most walking. Yes. The and the movie's still good. Walking, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I still like that movie, but he's just very walking. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, uh, there's there's something about this that I I just really dig because there's nothing I would contest yeah. that you say, but there's mm-hmm. something about the experience being able to just like laugh at it as this mm-hmm. like eighties action blockbuster of sorts you know what i mean yes. like this big high profile movie at least and, and and one thing you brought up was costner having this kind of like uh this kind of wooden mm-hmm. uh you know uh performance or whatever the stiff performance and, and you know what i didn't realize in my mind had you said bull durham and field of dreams i would have said those were before untouchables for sure and they're not they're not yeah. they're the years consecutively after yeah and so he did he did the untouchables high profile movie i don't know if that was his breakout role mm-hmm. um i'd have to look at his uh look at his filmography and see if yeah. there's anything even remotely that big prior yeah. but then he does bull durham in 88 which i watched for the first time within the last week mm-hmm. i had a great time with that it <laughs> dude okay can i go on a tangent real quick yeah Okay, ever, sorry everybody. I'm going to talk about baseball movies again real quick. You've seen Bull Durham. Yes. You've seen Major League, of course. I know Absolutely. you like that one. Yes. Major League is is it not basically just a really silly version of Bull Durham? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. It, it, ha- it has the voodoo guy. Uh-huh. It has the pitcher catcher relationship. It has the relationship outside of it. Granted, there isn't like a three way triangle going on, but right. still, like, 
I was watching Bull Durham and I just felt like I was because I'd watched Major League the night before. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I felt like I was just watching. The, I love both. I thought they were both great. By the yeah, way. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I love them both. I had a great time with them. But anyways, back back to this here. Uh-huh. But Costner does Bull Durham and then he does Field of Dreams, which as a kid, Field of Dreams, I loved it. Okay. I still like it, but um, I actually like it more now than I ever have probably. Uh, but as a kid, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, he did like 400 baseball movies. So I oh, always yeah. saw him as like the baseball guy uh-huh. uh, or, or Robin Hood. Like yeah. those were the, two- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like those are the two things, uh, I had as a kid. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just can't believe that he did those like bull Durham and field of dreams after this. What did he do yeah. prior to, uh, to the untouchables? Yeah. So, um, so the, the first thing of note that I see, he was in, he was edited out of the big chill, um, so Bummer. that didn't happen. Um, but he was in Silverado, which is a Western in 85, um, which I think I want to say he was the lead or like a co-lead in that. Um, he did No Way Out that came out the same year. Um, and then, um, yeah, th- those were like the two. So he was he was sort of like, you know, of no, but he he was probably recognizable. But you know, the untouchables is really his big, like coming out as a big lead and like in a big yeah. time movie. I wonder, tell me if you agree with this. I, you know how some people will have a, uh, a role that gets some attention, either it being high profile or whatever, Yeah. but it's another film that makes them blow up. Do you get what I'm saying? Like there, there's like yeah. that, that, fir- uh-huh. that first movie uh, puts them on the map and then they blow up. Do you feel like maybe this put him on the map, but then Dances with Wolves threw him over because of how many fucking awards and oh, shit yeah. that that was up for? Oh yeah, yeah. Like I, yeah, I, it was. I think it was a big thing when he, um, yeah. I, I think when the Untouchables came out, like it, it was like the big coming out. But um, and and then and I think I mean, no way is, out, Oh, that's after. Sorry, go ahead. I think Sorry. No Way Out also was like a big thing that got him some acclaim. Um, yeah. And then, you know, well, I think I want to say bull Durham was like the thing that really like started him as like a huge star. And then dances with wolves was like next level. Like now he's a mega star because that movie was such a big hit. And it was, you know, like you said, it was so popular come award season. And you know, it, it really like launched him into like the, the Tom Cruise sort of, you know, stratosphere. Um, but I, I think bull Durham was like, because Bull Durham was a big, like a big deal. And yeah, when, when I when I read about Bull Durham after watching it, mm-hmm. I I kept reading that these were like for even for Susan Sarandon, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, Tim Robbins, all three yeah. of them, mm-hmm. it was a a propeller or a breakout. Yes. For the and I'm like, this was really like Costner's big one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like so hard for me to believe even after watching it, but it was right. really fun. Crash Davis. What a great name. Yes. Um <clears throat> anyways, I I've 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 detoured us. I apologize. Um I've detoured. I said that really funny. I've detoured. Um anyways, uh but De Palma um uh Costner interesting in in uh a choice to do the untouchables here. I'm also a big David Mamet fan mm-hmm. and I don't know uh, what relationship you have with him, but David Mamet wrote this yeah. and uh, he's written and directed uh, several things. Of course, he wrote the untouchables. He directed and wrote house of games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also a big fan of homicide from 1991, mm-hmm. which has William H. Macy and uh, I'm spacing the other dude's name. Um, Joe Montana. 
Uh-huh. And uh, and uh, there's too many people to name, so I don't even need to go in there. But uh, anyways, uh, but yeah, he also uh, he's done a ton of stuff. Probably the most notable thing for me personally mm-hmm. is Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, which I think is just the fucking greatest thing ever. That is. Um, that's good. <laughs> it's just the greatest. It really is. Uh, I mean, I could. I'm literally looking at it, and I could go down. Okay. But he just does those really hard boiled things. And the, the when I think of David Mamet. In terms of what he directs and writes, mm-hmm. especially, um, it, it, I almost make him more of a kin to a writer that's like a Tarantino. Hear me out. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you watch something like Pulp Fiction, uh, you don't actually look at like uh, Vincent and Jules as like realistic people. They're what? like they're like cool, mm-hmm. like movie people yeah. you know what i'm saying like i used to think they were like believable but then when you watch it now it's like no everything feels like very yeah it feels written but it's like performed so well and it's directed like the whole vibe is there yeah but it's like not necessarily realistic i think of david mammoth the same way mm-hmm. like he writes it's like so mammoth mm-hmm. that it doesn't it's not even that it's really believable but like tarantino if you get into it it's like awesome. It's almost yeah. like that. Uh, I don't want to use the term auteur, but like um, uh, it's like an idiosyncratic thing that he has or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. my point is uh, big fan. I, I really like Mammoth's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a playwright that, of course, uh, became a screenwriter um, and a director as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any feelings about David Mammoth before I actually get into the fucking Untouchables? Right, I actually yeah. haven't talked about it yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of it. Yeah. Most of mine is um, is is um, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, which is just jesus is just a classic in so many ways that's just an eminently watchable movie and it's and it's the screenplay like almost 100 percent in that movie you know i mean there's great actors of course but uh yeah it was a play and then you get those that that cast yeah yeah to perform those words it's the fucking greatest yes and and it feels like a play you know like the 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 movie itself i mean aside from the the actors in it like there's nothing really remarkable about the movie, uh, you know. If you just look, just visually, it's just they're all. It's an interior. There's like it. It looks very cheap, and there's like sets, and there's like very obvious fake rain going through, and it's just like was made on the cheap, you know. But yeah. oh my God, it is just like tense, and it's it's all just. I mean, that's just like one of the greatest casts of all time, you know. That just looking at, at that list is it's just incredible. So. It's um, great. Yeah, it's just it's those two things together that uh, just make that movie so just so cool. And, you know, you're just like, I don't even care. Like and they they totally like sell out Al Pacino being like five foot two in that movie, too. And it's like, I don't like it. Watch it go. Jesus, I didn't realize he was that short. Uh, yeah. But, but um, it's man, it's a great movie um, that that's kind of my main exposure to, to David Mamet. Um, I mean, I've seen some of the other stuff, but not, nothing to me sticks out the way that does. I mean, it's stuff like Hoffa and uh, just kind of like looking through. Let me just look through. Yeah, Ronin and stuff yeah. like that. I think I think the key is <clears throat> you can't just watch the movies he's written. Yeah. I yeah. think I think for Mammoth, I encourage anyone listening, like go find movies he's directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, House of Games and Homicide, chief among them, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, watch either one of those. Uh, they're they're great. I wish Criterion would finally put out Homicide because they put out 
Actually, I think they have a DVD of it, but I wish they'd put out a Blu-ray. Uh, but House of Games, they already did. I got to get that movie um, and rewatch it, actually. Since I'm doing the 80s thing, I might as well. Yeah. So, uh, but Mammoth's great. So with, with the Untouchables, you know, uh, we've talked a little bit about De Palma. We've oh, a lot of, a lot of bit. Uh, we talked a lot of bit about Costner and Sean Connery and Robert De Niro phoning it in. Yes. Uh, which I agree with. Um, yeah, because, dude, it, yeah, it never for a second feels like Sean Connery gives one fuck. <laughs> right. Like, legit. Like, I'm with you. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, of course, we talk about David Mamet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this movie, uh, you know, it looks a certain way. It has a good vibe. Um, what did you feel about the story? Because I felt like, th- like, though I'm, like, just naturally really into this type of story, okay? Yeah. Um, it does feel... Um, what's the word I want to use? Uh, it's kind of very typically structured. Yes. They're not breaking any new ground here. Yeah. 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 They're, yeah, they're really not. It, it's, um, it, it, it sort of, it's a movie about, you know, it's a, it's again, it's a hard movie to watch in a modern way because it's, it's all about like, Hey, if you want to get the biggest of bad guys, you have to be, you have to break the rules and you have to be, you know, this, you know, you have to do all this stuff that's against the law. You got to live outside the law. And, it, you know, it, I, I, I just, I was watching this movie and I kept thinking, man, it's no, it's no wonder that, you know, cops that we have this thing today with cops who are just like cowboys and we're going to go out and we're just going to kill everybody. We don't care. Um, you know, if, if you don't like something, just blast somebody because that's really what these, you know, this movie and lethal weapon, obviously also, um, to an extent, and a hundred other movies from the 80s um, are, are very cavalier about about, you know, like who cops are and who they should be. <laughs> I just so. we just we just watched Above the Law two nights ago. <laughs> yeah. Steven Seagal movie, uh-huh. which was fucking actually really awesome. It's yeah. not a good movie, but no, yeah. it's really awesome. Quick. Another aside. My apologies, everyone. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't even know if we're ever actually going to talk about the Untouchables that much, but um, Above the Law is fucking awesome yeah Uh, (laughs) it is a fucking awesome 80s action movie Mm -hmm. and the cast is crazy because like sharon stone is in that movie what the fuck how did i not know this Mm -hmm. pam greer's in it what that's that's amazing it's awesome yeah (laughs) Yeah. it it is like it is steven i cannot wait to get to a 90s marathon after we finish this 80s one which is going to take way too long yeah to watch under siege uh nice that's like his big that's like his big Uh, one you know what i'm saying Mark for death i thought good one yeah what is it marked for death yeah his is that the 90s or or 80s i think i don't i don't know it may be i think hard to kill was like 89 maybe and then yeah i got i gotta look it up because I, I might add one of his movies uh-huh. um but yeah he's that's a fucking fun movie yeah my point is uh he goes above and beyond whatever uh his um he's allowed to he goes above the law okay yes. <laughs> Uh, even though that's not really what it's meant to mean because he's like it's not above my law like that's his whole point is like his law is more just yeah no he does he does a lot of uh, fucked up shit uh, anyways so uh yeah. b- back to uh the untouchables though maybe yeah. i'll do something on above the law sometime because i thought that was like so fun um that, yeah that'd be great to do <laughs> Dude, yeah. it, it's it's so fun yeah so, so i i guess like t- tell me a little bit about some of the things that you like about the untouchables because i yeah. feel like we could kind of nitpick 
some things that even if they don't bother me, mm-hmm. like the Sean Connery and De Niro phoning it in actually doesn't bother me, yeah. but it's super obvious. Right. I mean, it, it would bother me if I took it seriously, but mm-hmm. it just kind of made us chuckle. You know what I mean? And yes. and we just still had a good time with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah. but I agree with you. Like, what are some things that, that you thought it did well? Like, yeah. It, uh, you know, the, the, the famous scene um, at the, the train station, yeah, um, with the carriage. Yeah, the, yeah, with the baby carriage and all that stuff. It it's funny because it almost feels like a parody of itself today. But just watching it in a, you know, if, if you're letting yourself kind of be immersed in the time that this movie came out, pretend like you've not seen the you know 800 parodies of that. It, you know, it it does do a great job of of building that tension. Like you said, with no dialogue, it's it's that it's a very De Palma scene where it's just like yeah these kind of mundane shots lingering on a clock and on a door and, you know, and, you know, Costner is, is kind of at this, in this perch and he's waiting for, he's basically waiting for the waiting for um, Capone's bookkeeper, right. They're going to, they're going to take yeah. him in and take him into protective custody. He's going to testify. And it's kind of the key piece. And they, they, if they get him, they, they've got Capone. If they don't, he's walking. And so there's just all this, you know, and of course, like everybody's dead pretty much at this point. Yeah. And it's kind of just Costner and, you know, and there's just this woman like futzing with her. Well, the other <laughs> homies there though. Andy Garcia is still there. That's right. Andy Garcia is there. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're like the last two. And he's like, but he's also like lurking in the background, right? Like he's the backup and lurking around and, and, you know, it's, it, he's going to step out to help when he has to, but you know, there he, yeah. he, he walks into the train station or whatever uh, to see if any to make sure no one else is there on the other end and Costner's at the front door yeah, um, yeah. so yeah he's kind of out of the picture or whatever right yeah time. so so you you just like you see him once or twice at the beginning and then once everything goes down you know it's like you're you're waiting for the shooting to start and yeah. you know and then in the meantime like there's this woman messing with her baby carriage and he's just like come on lady get out of the way and you know <laughs> he finally like yeah. just gives up it's like i'm just gonna go help her <laughs> and he goes and helps yeah. her and then like of course that's the moment the guy comes out like you this like it's one of those things like you know what's about to happen you know that this is going to be a part of the you know a part of the scene this is a complication in the scene and and it was just very cool to sit and watch you know watch them going back and forth um i i do love yeah the 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 giving no shits uh sean connery is very entertaining through the movie <laughs> you know he's he's just you know and he he like you said he's throwing around racial slurs which is sort of uncomfortable uh, again in a modern context but um it's not you know it it isn't as it's not as terrible as it could be um you you know but it's and and it almost feels like a crutch you know that he's he's doing uh but but there is there is something well the zero fucks thing uh that that he has going on it's like it makes a lot of sense that they're using these slurs because a lot of yeah. people use these slurs at him. Yeah. And so it's very clear that there's this kind of like ethnic, mm-hmm. like be proud of your heritage. We're all different. We have our own struggles. Yeah. Um, but his zero fucks makes it seem like he's just calling people this to be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. But also the carriage sequence. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Battleship Potemkin from 1925. It's mm-hmm. a, an Eisenstein uh sergey eisenstein film and uh super popular uh but the carriage scene is directly taken from this uh, uh-huh. like 100 percent. the way that uh he builds they have a riot uh essentially of sort of like a protest in the movie battleship of timkin and then all of the uh cops come out and they're on top at this capital 
Uh, I don't. I've seen it uh, once or twice. It's been a, several years ago, but yeah. uh, you have like all these cops at the top, and then you have all of these people at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like the working class or whatever, and yeah. they're fighting, and the cops start shooting people. Right. And this woman with the ba- baby carriage is at the top of the stairs, though. Whenever the cops come, and uh, she gets knocked down, and her carriage starts going down. Yeah. And it's like that same kind of tension. You know what I mean? Because yeah, it's just yeah. frantically cutting back between all these things and yeah. man what a fucking great sequence i actually yeah. really liked that end i felt yeah. Yeah. Uh, like there was a lot of good tension there mm-hmm. and i was i felt the same way costner did i'm like will you fucking go <laughs> right. like you're gonna get sh-. and they're just shooting around this baby yeah yeah uh-huh that's stressful yeah i was just like yeah. i don't even know and I, and I do love the i do love the the end there when they you know they like secure of course they secure it spoiler alert they secure the carriage the baby is unhurt, but the mom is like freaking out, like still in the middle of this gunfight. And he's like, your baby's fine, lady. Like, be quiet. <laughs> like, get out yeah. of the way. <laughs> it just, wow. Just this goofy, like, uh, you know, that that's it's, it's funny you mentioned that about Battleship Potemkin that he, you know, it it's sort of that homage then. And um, and then there's this levity too of like this convention of you know, a, the hysterical mother with her baby in peril and he's just like will you shut up and sit still yeah 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 it's um yeah de palma's one of those guys not unlike uh maybe not to this extent but not unlike a free william friedkin scorsese Uh uh, any of those dudes that are coming out of the 60s and that big film movement Uh uh when film school started to kind of like become popular yeah and they're all just like scholars you know what I'm saying? Like they've seen everything. Like they're taking just the greatest influences. Mm-hmm. And uh, De Palma, of course, is is no secret fan of Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And though he may deny the extent to which you know he's influenced by him, it is um, like undeniable that there's so much Hitchcock in most of his movies. Less so the Untouchables, yeah. but you really see a lot of that mastery there. Mm-hmm. With De Palma, and uh, I have like a weird hit and miss thing with him, just because mm-hmm. sometimes his style really fucking works, and sometimes his style is really cheesy. Yeah. Even in something like uh, Casualties of War, like I actually really like that movie, yeah. uh, but it's like a morality tale, and it's the same shit the entire movie. Mm-hmm. It's just Michael J. Fox saying, "Guys, we shouldn't be bad guys," and then it's all of his platoon going, "Well, you know what? We outrank you. You're the noob, so uh, we're gonna be bad guys." you know what i mean and it's like uh and then they just have that conversation over and over until the end um but but the thing is like it is still a really like cool movie to see uh and i feel like he kind of gets trapped in that sometimes he did the same thing here when he's not doing a big kind of like hitchcockian dress to kill body double blowout movie yeah he's doing these blockbusters and a lot of times they feel a little like they don't have um um, I don't know. They don't feel like they have a whole lot of steam mm-hmm. in terms of what he's doing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah. so, um, you know, you have these two like veteran actors that don't give a fuck at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you'd call De Niro a veteran at this point, but you know what I mean? Like they're experienced, experienced actors. Mm-hmm. Um, Costner kind of breaking out here, and Andy Garcia. I actually thought Andy Garcia was the best among them. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And too. he's not in it a lot, but he's fucking great here. Yeah, uh-huh. man, I thought he was awesome. Yeah. Uh, what was his breakout? You think probably the Godfather three? I think he was in that. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Um, let's look at that. That's a good. That's a good thing. I remember. Um, I mean, uh, you know, obviously here was a thing. 
Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I don't think this, I think this maybe launched him into the, just like kind of the next step, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, 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 I did overlook the movie we're talking about. Of course, <laughs> this could, but he plays such a small, this isn't like Costner's role. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a very side role. Whereas in the Godfather, he was like a main dude. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's why I guess I brought that up, yeah, but uh, yeah. he, he started making, um, other cop movies, uh, Black Rain and Internal Affairs, and those are too big. Yeah, and then I think The Godfather Part Three was probably like the breakout. That was his next, you know, that was his next. Like he was, he was pretty much a star by that point. And then he made a bunch of like, you know, like silly movies, Jennifer Eight and Hero, and When a Man Loves a Woman. I remember that from the, you know, from what was that from '94 with Meg Ryan. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, he yeah he he made some. He made some like cheesy cop movies and you know melodramas and things in the middle, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. Godfather Part Three is probably the big. He was in Stand and Deliver, but honestly, I don't even remember him. In that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've always wanted to watch Eight Million Ways to Die, but I, yeah. I think I've heard it's like really terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the Hal Ashby movie, though, I like Hal Ashby. Yeah. Anyways, uh, here, here, here's my summation of 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 the Untouchables, and then you can. Uh, tell me yours here. Uh, I love David Mamet. Totally worth watching just to see when other people direct Mamet. Like I said, it always feels kind of like a uh, like a a, a neutralized Mamet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like this yeah. doesn't feel the same as his directed movies because he has a very specific flow. Much like it, when you watch something like um, uh, True Romance or uh-huh. Natural Born Killers that Tarantino wrote, they don't feel like Tarantino. Like you can tell it's them you know but it it doesn't feel like a tarantino movie you know it feels like a tony scott or an oliver stone movie yeah uh so uh, but i still think mammoth's great i'm super glad Ennio marconi did the score and made it like a billion times more tolerable he also <laughs> did uh, the casualties of war score i believe uh-huh. uh of course i love De palma even if i don't love all of his movies mm-hmm. um but i need to go back and watch sisters and and uh phantom of the paradise which i was always a big fan of and nice. uh some of those like 70s classics but as far as the 80s go I mean, uh, for me, it's it's all about that early stuff, man. Not Scarface, but yeah. it's all about that kind of Hitchcockian thriller thing he was doing. Yeah. I love those. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's like super on the nose diploma too. That's like his <laughs> yes. style is out there for the world to see. It's not neutralized or brought like reined in at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just a wild guy. Like you said, I I loved De Niro and Connery in this, but they they don't give a fuck. Yes. Like at all. And I just think that's really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garcia's great. I thought Costner was fine. I do think Costner went on to do better work. So, yeah, um, uh, I don't know. This is just one of those um, uh, relatively middle of the road, really entertaining movies mm-hmm. uh, for De Palma and for the 80s, for that matter. Yeah, uh, and I had a good time. Any any last thoughts on on uh, the Untouchables? Yeah, yeah. I you know it's funny that you know your De Palma. This this is almost like the again, if you forgive me saying a very De Palma De Palma, it is because it's you know not not because of the the subject matter, but because it's intermittently very entertaining and you know very flawed in a lot of ways. You know there there are a lot of great moments. You know we the we didn't mention the moment where. Um, uh, you know, uh, Elliot Ness grabs the, the dude, I can't remember his name, the dude in the white suit. And, you know, he's like, oh, arrest me, arrest me, which is, a, it's this weird, it's this weird 
goofy scene where he's like climbing down a rope, the guy, the bad guy. And, and then he climbs back up. He just like, climbs back up. Happening? Right. He's like, I'm going to get away, but oh, I'll just climb yeah, back up. He's chasing guy. a bad guy at the end, everybody. Yeah. And this guy tries to climb down a rope, realizes he's not getting down that way and climbs back up. Yeah. And Costner has the choice. We all recognize it as watching it. Does yeah. he just shoot this dude or kick him off mm-hmm. so he dies because right. he's a bad guy? Uh-huh. Which is the way he's been living his life per... Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Connery's character's yeah. thing, right? right like yeah, you're at war, mystery, you need right? to. They kill one of ours, you kill one of theirs. Worse, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, and then he chooses to give them <laughs> a hand and bring him up, and so it's almost yeah. like him taking back his uh-huh. his own morality or something, which yeah. is weird. But then it's also funny because the end of that movie, I was going to bring this up, I forgot, uh, and this isn't so much a story spoiler, yeah. but in real life, you know, prohibition ends. And so they talk about it, and they're like, what are you going to do now that Prohibition ends? He's like, I'm just going to go get a drink. Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. We laughed at that because I – well, I called it first because I didn't remember. I was like, he's probably going to go drink, and then he says the line. Yeah. Um, But it's just it's just very much like he's just this, like, goody two-shoes. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But, but, yeah, but the, the part you left out about that was that he does just, like – chuck that dude off the rooftop afterwards after he pulls him up you're like he's like oh arrest me arrest, and he grabs him and then he, he says something and he just grabs him and chucks him off the building and does kill him in the I end complete, yeah i completely like, forgot God. about that oh but no but it's because he talks shit about uh, connery yeah yeah he, yeah he said and then he revert he goes it's like he's always he has this duality costner's yeah. character because right. you know he's like he's himself but then whenever he's influenced by connery he is that that uh, the guy that would throw him off the fucking uh, roof. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, he does. He just yeah, he just tosses him and and that like that moment's badass. Like you know, it's if, <laughs> if you watch it in the you know if you watch it in context, it's like oh police brutality, like arrest the dude. But then he you know it's like it's like Capone's going down at this point. Like that dude's gonna go down with him, and yep. it's just like just throw him in prison forever. You know, but he's just like no, nah, I'm just gonna kill this guy. So you know it's. But it's but it's also you know in that way it's like very De Palma just very up and down like there's flashes of just brilliance and then just some weird things where you're like this is almost kind of like you know and I'm going back to like the, some of the sound design stuff and some of the like the the sound effects and gunshots and stuff that just seemed really lame and I was just like it's almost inept you know and then even some of the editing was kind of bad but then then there's just these moments these full sequences that are just amazing and you're just like wow you know. Uh, and some in some great moments kind of mixed in so it's it's just it's just sort of De Palma in a nutshell <laughs> it's like it, it's masterful in some ways and you're just like what what are you thinking about here you're are you trying in this part but yeah you know but yeah it's it's, it's eminently watchable and entertaining um, and it's a movie you can laugh at and marvel with at the same time you know so yeah yeah untouchables was uh, a really fun time we I think uh, my buddy and I had a really good time with it it was also really fun showing someone uh, a filmmaker because when we watched uh, dress to kill he's like dude i just want to watch all the De Palma stuff back to back yes like, okay <laughs> and we watched it chronologically and we just went through and it's it's awesome it's like one of my favorite things is to show people things in movies that they don't normally see mm-hmm. and say like yeah like watch what he's doing here you'll see this in other movies and then you know by the time we got to like body double he's calling stuff my buddy you know what i mean yeah. he's like oh look there's the split focus oh look there's the first person there's the blah 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 you know all these little De Palma type things mm-hmm. um, and it was really fun to be able to watch something like The Untouchables and Casualties of War which like I said are much more reserved mm-hmm. less like hyper De Palma style and more uh, more reserved and kind of uh, bigger budget De Palma yeah. 
uh, because that stuff's still there as it is in Scarface. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just like when I think of Scarface, I still don't I, I don't think of De Palma much either because right. that's like such a different thing. Um, yeah. So it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad that we I'm glad that we did this. I'm glad yeah. that we did the Untouchables. Yeah. Um, if, if you guys have seen this, uh, the Untouchables and agree or disagree, if you haven't seen it, you can watch it on HBO Max. But if you have. Let me know. Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Joe, thanks, buddy. Hey, my pleasure. Man, I have been so excited to talk with Joe about these 80s movies. When I started this marathon, I thought, man, Joe's going to love this. I just knew it. Uh, but yeah, that's our feelings on Lethal Weapon and The Untouchables. I love Brian De Palma. I have like a, it's a weird love hate thing because it's not that I think he's like the greatest filmmaker or anything, but he does just have such a distinct style that when you watch a bunch of his movies, it's just like, God damn it, this guy's an auteur. You know what I mean? Like he just has like this, ah, man, he just has this thing. But then Mad God, holy crap, I was super excited. I've been waiting for that movie. I've been trying to get a screener and I've talked to the people, like the, the company that made it. I, I, dude, I've been trying to get a screener for like since last year. And, you know, they were like, hey, let's just wait until we get close to actually releasing it, which I was totally fine with. I was like, no, 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 that makes way more sense. I'll do a show on it. I'll do something. Um, and I just had to wait till it came out. And, dude, I'm so happy it finally did. What a what a weird experience. I love having unique experiences like that. Um, so, anyways, with that, I will uh, let you guys get out of here. I hope you enjoyed the show. We're going to have some more fun stuff coming up here uh, in the near future that I hope you enjoy. And um, more 80s movie content, if I had to guess, with, uh, with this marathon I'm doing. So... Uh, we'll get there. Also, I haven't forgotten. I plan to do a Hitchcock marathon at some point. I'll probably be bringing in Jake, uh, um, uh, JB, back to the show, and uh, that will be fun. Maybe, maybe Jake Bottleleary will come on with his dad. We'll see. Maybe I could get all three of us on there. That'd be fun. But anyways, uh, until then, thank you guys so much. I love you. Good night. Good luck, and take it easy. <laughs>